We will start in chapter 2. And uh, just to bring us back up to up to our place in the scriptures where we've been studying, the period of the judges ends in 1 Samuel. And that's because the last two judges are in 1 Samuel. That's Eli, he was the high priest, and then Samuel is a prophet. But both of them served as judges. And both of them are contemporary with Samson. So if we remember the things that were going on with Samson and the tribe of Dan, that territory, and how he was contending with the Philistines, and, and Eli and Samuel are both going to be in the area of Ephraim. First um, Samuel, the book, it walks us through the transition uh, where we, the period of Judges comes to a close and all of Israel becomes united under one king. And that very first king and all of the ones that followed him were inadequate. And in God's purposes, that caused the remnant to yearn for the coming Messiah. And so in chapter 1, last sun, two Sundays ago, we three Sundays ago, we studied 1 Samuel and we looked at chapter 1. And we were introduced to a husband and wife, Elkanah and Hannah. And uh, they lived for God. As far as we can tell, they lived for God their entire life. They were a very godly couple. They were believers and followers of God, and they tried to obey the law and were very respectful in every area of their life as far as we can tell. But because Hannah was barren, they didn't have peace in their hearts. And to try to find peace, they took on a second wife. And Elkanah married Penina. And they did that so that she could bear their children for their inheritance. That was a mistake. They got ahead of God. They should have waited. They didn't. And so now they really did not have peace in their home. Well, every year, they would go to the tabernacle to give offerings and to give thanks to God and to worship God. And that's because the tabernacle was a tent. It was temporary. It could be packed up and moved. And so at this particular time, it was in Shiloh. And Shiloh was in the area of Ephraim, where we're studying this morning. And so uh, the law prescribed that all of the adult men would, would come to the tabernacle for three different feasts. And we talked about that the last time we were together. And so, uh, but this was a family event. If the families all came in. And so you remember in the... In the, in the life of Jesus, the, the tabernacle was permanent. It was a temple, and the temple was in Jerusalem. And so everybody came to Jerusalem for Passover and for Pentecost and the, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And so these were uh, this godly couple would go to Shiloh to give offerings to God and to worship. But every year this happened, Penina was driving Hannah crazy. The Bible tells us that she was insulting her and belittling her and provoking her. The word provoke is actually used, trying to push Hannah's buttons about the fact that she had children and Hannah didn't. Well, what that ended up doing is driving Hannah to her knees and falling on her face before God at the tabernacle. And this was when we were introduced to Eli, the high priest. And while 
verse 3 there in, in chapter 1, it tells us that Eli had two, two sons named Hophni and Phinehas. And we're going to meet those two guys today. Hophni and Phinehas. Those are Eli's two boys. They're grown men. But this horrible experience that Hannah was going through brought her to a place to where she just fell on her face before God and was pleading with Him at the tabernacle. And that's when we met Eli because Eli thought she was drunk. And he was offended and aggravated at her. He said something to her about it. When he found out that all she was really doing was pouring out her heart to God, the two of them ended up parting with giving blessings to each other. And then the Bible tells us that when Samuel was just still a young boy, after he had been weaned, so he's probably around the age of three. In verse 24 it says, though the boy was still young. So he's just a little boy. It says that they, Elkanah and Hannah, came to Shiloh, they offered their offerings, and then they gave the boy to Eli. Chapter 2 begins with this prayer of Hannah that we read together the last time we were with each other. And that will bring us to verse 12 in chapter 2, and that's where we're going to begin reading. And uh, what we know about Eli's family, the the details that we have about him and his family, uh, begin to be introduced to us in chapter 1 but it moves all the way through chapter 4. All four chapters tell us about Eli. And the whole time this is happening, there is a deliberate contrast. It actually uses the word contrast. The number, it's, it's very clear that God is wanting us, to, and the author of this is the contrasting Eli and his family and Samuel and his family. There's a contrast there that is deliberate. And so we'll begin reading in 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Eli's sons were wicked men, and they had no regard for the Lord or for the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. When any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling, and they'd plunge it into the container or the kettle or the cauldron or the cooking pot. And the priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. And they did this even before the fat was burned. The priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast, because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If that man said to him, The fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself. Well, the servant would reply, No, I insist that you hand it over right now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because they treated the Lord's offering with contempt. But the boy Samuel served in the Lord's presence and wore a linen ephod. And each year his mother made him a little robe and she took it to him when he was with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and he'd say, May the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one she has given to the Lord. And then they would go home. Verse 21. 
Well, the Lord paid attention to Hannah's need and she conceived and she gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old and he heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why are you doing these things? I have heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my sons, the report I hear from the Lord's people is not good. If a man sins against another man, God can intercede for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father since the Lord intended to kill them. By contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. So right off the bat, we are told that Eli's sons were wicked men and they had no regard for the Lord. These are the, the two boys of the high priest of Israel. They said they did not have any regard for God or for the law, for the, for the, the sacrifices from the people. Now, what was happening is these families would, would come to Shiloh and they'd offer their offerings. There was sin offerings, there was burnt offerings, there was a peace offering. And uh, this was after the peace offering. And so they were, making a, they were preparing the meals for their families. And the law provided for the priests to have a part of the meat so they could have a, the breast and a right leg. But uh, the meat was all supposed to be boiled until all the fat was gone. And that was to honor God. And so they were circumventing all of that and just taking whatever kind of meat they wanted, and they were even taking meat before it even been, had even been cooked. And they were doing it to everybody. And that's why in verse 17 it says that their sin was so severe in the presence of God. God saw what they were doing as being very, very bad. They were treating His offering with contempt. And then we find out that every year, Elkanah and Hannah went to Shiloh and they would bring, Hannah would bring a little robe for Samuel. And every year this was happening, Eli was blessing them. So it didn't happen right off the bat. Every year they would come to Shiloh, he would say, may God bless you with more children. But eventually the Lord remembered them and Hannah ended up having five more children. And while all of that is going on, in verse 21, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And then we find out that when Eli was very old, he finally found out about what his, gut, his boys were doing. Now if Eli's old, then his, his sons are old. They might have been 40 or 50 years old. We don't know exactly. But they were grown men. We're going to find out later that they're married. They're doing all this as, as married men. Well, he found out that they were doing all of these things to all Israel. In other words, everybody in Israel is coming to the tabernacle. Everybody. And they're all being treated this way by the priests. And Eli's old and he's just now finding out about it. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. You can imagine, you know, everybody keeps their mouth shut about something somebody's doing. And when somebody finally starts to spill the beans, all of a sudden there's this huge dumpage of information. Yeah, and guess what else they've been doing? Oh, I forgot to tell you this. They do this too. And just this massive 
inundation on Eli about what has been going on this whole time. So he finds out what they've been doing about the sacrifices. And then verse 22, and how they're sleeping with the women who served at the entrance of the, the women who served at the tabernacle. They've been sleeping with them. Well, Eli is, you know, beside himself. He says, why are you, why are you guys doing these terrible things? I've, I've heard about your evil actions. So he didn't say, come on, guys, knock it off. He said, these evil actions. He was in full agreement with God that what they were doing was terrible. And he said, you know, if, if you do something against another person, a man can maybe intercede and work it out. I said, but when you sin directly against God, there's nobody in between you. Do you realize what you've done? Now, these women were not official servants that's prescribed by the law. They were volunteers. And what they actually did at the tabernacle, we don't exactly know. Um, they might have been helping watch children when families came to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, the things that were going on there. It's, not, it's kind of a rated R uh, environment uh, with, the, with the bloodshed and that, so animals. And so uh, maybe they watched the kids. There's a number of things they did to assist the Levites. We don't know exactly. And you may remember in Judges chapter 11 when Jephthah made that vow with his daughter. The first person who comes out of my house, I give to the Lord. And it was his only daughter. And so we believe that she probably, the evidence is in favor that she ended up going to the tabernacle and she spent the rest of her life serving. And so I'm not saying that this is one of those women, but I'm just saying it kind of helps us get an idea about how ladies were serving in the tabernacle, and they, they found a place and a way to serve God. And so this was a, a really bad thing. And uh, this pronouncement at the end, it says, you know, if a man sins against another man, God can intercede for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who's, who can intercede for him? But at the end of verse 25, he says, but they would not listen to their dad since the Lord intended to kill him. That means that God had already made up his mind. He had already decided to judge them. It was, they went to a, a past a point of no return. Think of the thief on the cross. You know, he had, he had went way past it. He was on the cross. You know, he wasn't getting out of that punishment. But he could still get saved. And he did. But here was a matter of too late. It just means that God had decided that he wasn't going to soften their hearts to repent. Maybe in your life you've had a habit or you've been in some kind of a, a funk where you wish that you wouldn't do it and you can't seem to quit. Maybe there's a situation in your life that you know is just not quite appropriate and you need to fix it, but you just it's, you keep putting it off and you admit to God that it's not quite right, but it just doesn't really change. I know in my life that's happened many times. And you don't get out of it unless God delivers you from it. He's got to free you up. He's the one who takes that ball and chain off of your ankle. Because repentance is a gift. It's not something that we manufacture. You can't explain things about God to a lost person logically and they're like, oh, you know, I'm so stupid. And then they repent, and the next thing you know, they're living for God for the rest of their life. It just doesn't happen like that. When people are doing things that are destructive to themselves, they know it. 
but they're in this funk, they're in this rut, you know? And sometimes we're in that rut, you know, and, and uh, we can't get out. And sometimes the end of that rut is, has an abrupt ending at the feet end of a coffin. Repentance is a gift. I don't know how many times I've asked God, would you please cause me to not do this anymore? Would you please stop this in my life? Would you please clean me up? Please give me repentance. Please give me a heart that changes. Please change my heart. That's a scary prayer because you know, God's going to do something, but you have to sometimes because you can't do it yourself. You just can't manufacture these things. We are at the mercy of God's grace. We always have to remember that. So if you don't quite get the church thing, you need God to open your eyes. Open your mind so that you can understand the Scriptures. and You understand what, a, what substitutionary atonement means in your heart. And that you truly believe it and embrace it. You know, we think about Elkin and Hannah and how they got ahead of God and they, you know, they, she didn't have any kids. And who who's going to inherit the land? There was no, who, who, what, were we, what were we going to do? Who are we going to pass everything on to? And the Old Testament says, you know, having kids is a blessing. So if you're not having kids, then God's cursing you. That was the conclusion, but it isn't true. You know, if we think about uh, in big picture, if you just think about things in big picture just for a minute, and, and not global, but just in this little area that we're studying. If you think about how Samson's contending with the Philistines, and the Philistines are still there, and the Philistines cause all kinds of trouble all the way through, through everything we're getting ready to study with the kings and stuff. But, um, and then you've got Jephthah and that daughter, and then you've got Eli and, and his sons growing up, and then Samuel, and how all of this is paving the way for Saul, the next king. And you can see that, that God is doing something. He's at work there. He knows exactly what's happening, but when you jump into any one of those places, you can't see the big picture. Only God can. And you can see why it was so strategic that Samuel was born at the time he was born. But Hannah and Elkanah couldn't see that. And so they got ahead of him. And the Old Testament... Uh, is full of examples, and it's supposed to uh, help us uh, so that we can better navigate through the things that we're going on, going through in life, and to help us to to trust Him, because we know that He He understands what He's doing, and and that we can we can trust Him because He has a plan. There's a there's a reason these things are occurring. The fact that they married Penina and put her in the home and drove Hannah crazy, that brought Hannah to the place to where she would give her son to the Lord. If Hannah just got married and she started having kids, do you think she'd have thought, oh, I'm going to give my first one to God. You're going to go live at the tabernacle from now on. No, it was, it was to prepare Hannah's heart to do this one thing because God wanted to raise up Samuel to be the prophet. And so when we come here to these boys and when they're confronted by their dad about what they're doing wrong, they don't listen to him. They don't pay any attention. 
because they don't know God. They don't care anything about it. It's something they're just abusing to, for their own advantages. They obviously did not put a lot of weight on their marriage, their relationships with their wives. And it says God intended to kill them. They were past the point of no return. Judgment was certain. Because repentance is a gift. You know, in some Bible circles, people think that a lost person is deaf, dumb, and blind. They're under wrath. They're under judgment. Their heart is hostile towards God. And it's completely true. All of that's true. And if someone's lying here on the floor dead, you know, we can't bring them back and they can't bring themselves back. You know, so a lost person can never choose to be saved. They would never choose that. And so God has to regenerate them first. There's a lot of, a lot of Christians that think that. God regenerates you and then you're able to believe and then you're able to repent. But the Bible teaches us that salvation comes through faith. And that faith is a gift, just like repentance is. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that for we are all saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so no one can boast. Faith itself, belief, is a gift. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, Paul is talking about people who are in opposition to the church. And he's, he's telling them how to, how to respond to that. And to, to not quarrel with them, not to debate with them. Don't get into debates with people about God. But to correct them gently. To respond with patience. Why? Because perhaps God will grant them the gift of repentance that leads to the knowledge of truth. Salvation, repentance is a gift. So when, when God imparts that gift and intervenes in a person's darkened heart and their darkened mind and gives them that wonderful gift and they believe, they are regenerated. It all happens at once. Maybe it can be divided up into a way I don't understand by God, but Scripture's very clear. Faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. And this is why these guys are left in the dark. It's a sobering reminder to all of us that if we decide to live a life of sin, we walk away from the faith or we do something, we can bring ourselves to a place of no return. Well, this is what was happening with these boys, these grown men. But in verse 26, it says, But in contrast, by contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. So we're, we're being told more than one time here that Samuel is growing up in the presence of the Lord and in the best way possible. Um, that kind of language is very similar to the way Luke described Jesus in his youth. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature 
and in favor with God and with men. You know, it must have taken quite a bit of faith for Elkanah and Hannah to, to go to Shiloh and to give them their boy. Because everybody knew what was going on. You kind of lose heart. You know, well, God wants me to, to go. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to do what He wants. But i got to take them to this godless, filthy stuff that's happening at the tabernacle. All right. Well, God, You know what's going on. You can stop it if you want. You're not stopping it, whatever, but I'm going to be faithful to You. I'm going to obey the law. I'm going to go to the tabernacle. I'm going to do my offerings, and they're going to do what they're going to do. We know everybody knows. In chapter 2, verse 15, which we just read, it said that when they were taking this meat, it says this is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. The entire nation knew about this. When he's confronting his sons in verse 24, he says, No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. What I'm hearing is what the people of the Lord are all talking about. You know, sometimes we'll meet someone who's in the Roman Catholic Church and they will express disillusionment over the sex scandals. That's because it's it's such a tragedy when our church leaders mess up. Raphael was an Italian Renaissance painter. He was known for painting Madonnas. I was going to put a picture up there of him, but I didn't do it. And uh, there's a story about him. Um, he painted frescoes in the Vatican, and they did all. He's he's an architect and a painter, but uh, there's a, there's a, a kind of often told story about him. And I tried to find the source, and the closest I could come was to kind of an unlikely source, a guy by the name of David Hume, who's a Scottish. Enlightenment philosopher of all people. He's the oldest person I could find that was citing this statement that this painter said once. On one occasion, Raphael was in the Vatican and he was working on one of the, the, uh, the fresco cycles there and two cardinals had stopped by to watch him and to be sarcastic and make comments. And one of them said that the, one of the apostles' faces was too red. It's too reddish. And he quickly said, well, he blushes to see into whose hands the church has fallen. He blushes to see into whose hands the church has fallen. And that's what the nation of Israel was doing. They were blushing. You know, the the last thing we want to do as a congregation is be someone who would cause someone else to blush. Verse 27. A man of God came to Eli and he said to him, This is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself to your ancestral house when it was in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace? I selected your house from the tribes of Israel to be priests, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your house all the Israelites' fire offerings. Why then 
after I've, done, I've honored you in such a way, why then do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the peace of worship, at the place of worship? Eli, you have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel says, although I said your family and your ancestral house would walk before me forever, the Lord now says, no longer. I will honor those who honor me, but I will, but those who despise me will be disgraced. Look, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your ancestral family so that none in your family will reach old age. You will see distress in the place of worship in spite of all the good that is in Israel and no one in your family will ever reach old age. Any man from your family I do not cut off from my altar will bring grief and sadness to you. All your descendants will die violently. This will be the sign that will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Both of them will die on the same day. Then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty for him, and he will walk before me, before my anointed one, for all time. Anyone who is left in your family will come about out to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. He will say, please appoint me to some priestly office so that I can have a piece of bread to eat. Well, this man of God, we don't know who he is. It could have been a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, but that, we can't say that. It's a man of God. And he comes to Eli with this message from God, a prophetic message. And at this particular place in, in verses 27 through 29, it sounds like Eli is very much involved in what these guys have been doing. He says, why do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings? You have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. And so at this point, it, it makes it sound like Eli is participating. But we have to remember that in verse 22 of chapter 2, Eli is finding out about this at, at old age. He's just now finding out. And if we were to jump ahead into chapter 3, verse 13... We find out that what Eli is really wrong for and being included in their sins is for inaction, not action. This is what God says to him. I told him, uh, actually, just I don't want to jump ahead, but it says, I told him that I, I am going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity, the sins that Eli knows about. His sons are defiling the sanctuary and he has not stop them. So Eli in chapter 2 where we're reading here, he is included in his son's sins, not because he is participating in action, but he is participating by inaction. He hasn't stopped him. He says, therefore I will honor those who honor me, but those who despise me will be disgraced. No one in your family will ever reach old age. And both of your sons are going to die on the same day. He says, then I'm going to raise up a, a faithful priest for myself. And this guy is going to do whatever is in my heart and mind. And I will establish a lasting dynasty for him. And this pronouncement that this man of God gave Eli, 
He talked about the past. And he talked about what a, what a present and gift it is to be a high priest. And for your family, the Levites, to serve as priests. What an honor. He looks back at, the, at what God did for them. And then he looks at the present. And when he does, he includes Eli's. We've been reading there in verse 29. He's including Eli. He says, but look what you're doing. And then he points to the future. Talks about what's going to happen in the future. Judgment's going to fall. Your lineage is going to be cut off. Your family will no longer serve as the high priest. And I'm going to raise up a prophet, a priest who will follow my heart and do what is in my mind. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, God gave the, high, the position of the high priest to Aaron and his sons. And Aaron had four sons. God's already killed two of them. Nadab and Abihu. And that only leaves two remaining boys. And one of them's names is Ithamar. And Eli is the descendant from Ithamar. And so that lineage is about to be cut off. And that only leaves one more son, and that's Eleazar. And his son's going to be Zadok, and that's going to be the Zadokot priest from now on. Eventually, this is all going to come through him. But at the same time in this pronouncement, he is talking about Zadok and the priests that are going to be from his lineage. He's also pointing to the future. Because ultimately, this promise, this fulfillment can only be fulfilled through Jesus. He's the only one who can actually do this. And we also know that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. He's not from the tribe of Levi. So how can he serve as a priest? And that is because Jesus is from the order of Melchizedek. And this is something that is described in Hebrews chapter 7 through 8. We will not go into that. But it may have appeared to everyone that these guys were just getting away with it because time was passing by. God wasn't doing anything. I'm sure that Hannah felt that way when Penina was giving her the blues. Well, what's going to happen next is Samuel's going to get a little bit older in chapter 3. He's gotten a little bit older. And he is serving with Eli in the tabernacle. And one of the major responsibilities those guys had was to, to keep the, the lamp in the, in the holy place lit. It was not supposed to go out from until in the morning. So I had to keep that lamp lit. And, and uh, Samuel and the boy are attending to the lamp and they're sleeping and and God calls out to Samuel while he's asleep. And Samuel says, he wakes up, and he's like, he goes to Eli. And he says, Eli, did you call me? And Eli says, I didn't call you, go back to bed. Samuel goes and he lays down again. God calls out to Samuel. Goes back to Eli. Eli said, it wasn't me. Go back to bed. Well, the third time, Eli realized what's going on. 
He said, that's God. The next time he calls your name, you say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And that's exactly what happens. Chapter 3, verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do something in Israel that everyone who hears about it will shudder. On that day, I will carry out everything against Eli, everything I said about his family from the beginning to end. I told him that I'm going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity he knows about. His sons are defiling the sanctuary and he has not stopped them. Therefore, I have sworn to Eli's family, the iniquity of Eli's family will never be wiped out. The iniquity of Eli's family will never be wiped out by either sacrifice or offering. Well, Samuel went back and he laid down because that was the last thing he wanted to tell Eli. Of course, Eli is going to want to know what God say. So this young lad who's being raised by this high priest, it's kind of like his dad. It's the only male figure he really knows. He's got this horrible, horrible message. Verse 16, Samuel, my son, here I am. What was the message he gave you? Don't hide it from me. And so he told him. And when Eli heard those words, it confirmed the things that the man of God had already told him. It confirmed the things that he already knew in his heart. And in verse 18, he said, well, he is the Lord. He will do what he thinks is good. Verse 19, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let nothing he said prove false. Samuel was a prophet. That's what that means right there. In verse 20, it says, From Israel, all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south, from east to west, all of Israel knew that Samuel was confirmed prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear in Shiloh because there he revealed himself to Samuel by his word. And so the fact that all of Israel was now aware that there was a prophet named Samuel and that he was speaking on God's behalf, everyone in Israel knew it, that fact is going to draw Saul into the picture very soon. Well, what's going to happen in chapter 4 is uh, the Philistines are causing trouble. They're getting ready for a, for a war with Israel. And so they go out to fight the Philistines and they get, they get defeated. They lose 4,000 men in chapter 4. And so they come to Shiloh and they said, give us the Ark of the Covenant. Why don't we take that with us into war? And so Eli's two sons carry the Ark into battle. There's a terrible loss, a great slaughter. Israel is resoundingly defeated and the Ark of the Covenant is captured. Eli's sons die. And Eli is sitting on a chair on the road. He's old, he's blind, he can't see. And he's worried to death, not about his, about his sons. He's worried about the Ark of the Covenant that was taken out of the Holy of Holies, waiting to hear about the Ark.
Well, after this terrible battle, a little man from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, remember the things we've learned about that tribe and how, how it moves through the period of the judges. Well, a Benjamite ran from the battle and came to Shiloh. Eli was sitting on a, on a chair by the road watching because he was anxious about the ark of God. Verse 13 of chapter 4. And when Eli was told at 98 years old, and his gaze was fixed because he couldn't see, verse 15, when he was told that there was a great slaughter, that his boys were dead, and then the ark. And verse 18 of chapter 4 says, when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off the chair by the city gate, and since he was old and heavy, his neck broke, off, broke and he died. Eli had judged Israel 40 years. He was a judge. What we've been reading about puts church leadership under the spotlight, but also parenting. There's the contrast between Samuel and, and Eli's sons. It's intentional. There's the contrast between Elkanah and Hannah and Eli. And when we look at Eli, and his, he's the high priest, he's got these two boys that just turned out so bad, you know, we, we ask ourselves, what went wrong? What did Eli do wrong? That's what we naturally think, isn't it? When kids mess up, we look at the parents first. Is that fair? Well, I want us to be real careful about that because I'll be honest with you. As I study this, and I, I read commentaries, and I listened to other sermons, and I studied this, I found just a deluge of pastors talking about how big of a scumbag Eli was. What a terrible parent. I don't find that here. We have to remember that God did not punish Eli because he was a bad parent. God punished Eli because he didn't address the sins of his two sons. He was the high priest. It was under his responsibility to maintain things that were going on in the tabernacle. It was his responsibility. And it didn't matter if it was his boys or somebody else's boys, it was his responsibility. And he didn't address that. That's why Eli was punished. Outside of his failure to discipline his two sons, Every time we see Eli, he is at the tabernacle. He is serving in the tabernacle. When Hannah came there and he thought she was drunk, he was mad about it and offended. And he said something to her. He called her out on it and said, hey, we don't do that here. And then he blessed her when he realized that she was pleading to God. And, and then when they brought him the boy, Eli took the boy in. He raised him. He trained him. And when Elkanah and Hannah would come there every year, he would greet them and he would give them a blessing and, and pray that God would give them more children. And it was Eli who knew that it was God's voice calling Samuel. And even when Eli heard of God's judgment, he accepted the good choices of God. He trusted God. Eli, did, he agreed with God that what his sons were doing was, was a sin. 
Eli agreed with, with God that it was unacceptable. He just, he just didn't stop him. And when the ark was taken into battle, his reverence and concern found him sitting alongside the road, waiting in blindness. Never forget, Eli was a judge for 40 years. I'm sure he had his faults. But from everything in Scripture, we see a man serving God with his life. If he was such a bad parent, then why did Samuel turn out so well? Why didn't Samuel follow the footsteps of his others, of Hophni and Phinehas, right? But that being said, we all know that what we do and don't do can have a negative impact upon our kids. And just from our text, I can think of three ways that came to mind. Here they are. Lack of time. You have to spend time with your kids. It's been said that uh, love can be spelled T-I-M-E. And that really all your kids want you to do is just show up. Just be there. When people are going through death or some sort of horrible situation that you can't fix, just being there means everything. Show up at the funeral. Show up for your kids. I regret. I, there's been times in my life when I've worked around the clock. I mean, I just work around the clock sometimes. Some of my kids, I missed some really important times with my children. So much so that I don't know why they turned out so good, to be honest. Give kids your time. There's no substitute for that. It's the same way with Bible study. You, know, you can hear sermons and all of that, but it's that personal time studying for yourself when you really learn. God can really teach you things that you uh, didn't know. and It's an opportunity for Him to speak to you. There's no uh, substitute for time in the Bible, time with your children, and lack of instruction. Telling your kids, you know, train up a child in the way he should go. That is telling you and me that we are supposed to tell our kids about God and why he has rules, the, the heart behind the rules, that they make sense and it's for your own good. It's not to be a killjoy. The, the wisdom in living for God, not just eternal life, but just to have an abundant, happy, fruitful life that, where there's peace that transcends your circumstance. Teaching your children that. You know, you'll hear parents say things like, well, I'm not going to shove anything down my kids' throats. I'm going to let them make their own decisions. Well, that's just great. You know, why don't you just throw them to the wolves while you're at it? That is not the biblical perspective when it comes to child rearing. Teach your kids. Take them to church. Be in church. And finally, lack of discipline. This comes in many ways. Just denying that what they're doing is wrong, making excuses, or just flat out condoning it. That's not sin after all. Those are some three terrible things that we can do that will negatively impact our children.
Well, as a parent or as a grandparent, this can help. Uh, if you still have grandkids or if you still have kids, especially if you're raising kids, because now you know what you got to do. Now you know what you don't want to do. But this can also hurt if your kids are already grown up and they're out there in the world. You've already turned them loose and things aren't going well. But our goal this morning is to help, not to hurt. God's motivation is always to help us, not to hurt us. Because no matter what the past is, there's always the future, and God wants to be a part of all of our futures. He wants to be a part of what we're doing right now, where you're at right now. God is the great healer. He's the great restorer, the great physician. This is how it helps. Because being a parent or a grandparent never stops. Long after the kids are out of the house and they're on their own and they're doing their thing, long after all of that, as they go through life experiences, they will continually reflect upon us and the standard that we set, the standard that we live by. We give them that. So our present lifestyle, our present values, our present beliefs means everything. And that should help. And finally, while this passage does focus on parenting, the applications are universal. Because all of us are stewards. God has entrusted all of us with sets of responsibilities. Even if your stewardship is only yourself, the applications are the same because all of us can make the same mistakes that we saw in the study this morning. So let's pray.